I say this uh, frequently. Uh, this church is blessed with uh, some incredibly talented people, and uh, and every week we get to enjoy that. And I'm grateful for the group that that does the tech and does uh, and then shares their musical abilities. Jamal, I I uh, continue to, to so grateful not only for your talent to play the piano, but also just your friendship and uh, your willingness to get involved in whatever way possible, and to the rest of the crew as well. You guys just do a great job. It, 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 uh, it's fantastic. So, so thank you for that. I wanna, want you to wrestle with a question for, for a brief moment, and I'll get to the answer of that question in, in, in a brief moment. And the question is this, which of your five senses is the most powerful? I want to throw out a few stats for you. We are told, people, have, uh, people that research this stuff, are told the, we're told the following, that we can see anywhere between 2 to 7 million different colors. 2 to 7 million different colors. That's a lot of colors. We are told that we can hear approximately 350,000 different tones. Now, one of the tones that I remember growing up with was my mother's tone when she used my middle name. And that meant, come running now, because you need to get home. But both of these statistics, 2 to 7 million different colors that we can see, 350,000 tones that we can hear, pale in comparison to the powerful sense of smell. Researchers have concluded this, that we can, we, that the way our body is designed, the way God did, the, the way God designed our body is, is so amazing. They've concluded this, that our sense of smell can detect around one trillion different smells. That's a one with twelve zeros behind it. To give you an idea of comparing that to the sense of, to the sense of sight, it is 150 times stronger than our sense of sight. It is 2.8 million times stronger than our sense of hearing. Our ability to smell is absolutely amazing. We can smell all these different things, and, and there was a period in my life where I was only able to smell one thing. I was 14 years old. I was playing Little League Baseball with this crew of guys that we had been playing baseball since we were in fifth grade. We were having a blast this particular season. And the reason why is because we were undefeated after eight games. All of us, before each game, would look at each other and say, we're still undefeated, we're still undefeated. We were excited. We couldn't believe it. And so before this game gets going, I I, uh, was asked to help warm up our starting pitcher that day. His name was Lanny Quigley. He and I were in a band together. We broke up after we did one song. It was, it was difficult. But, uh, but I started warming him up, and Lanny had two different types of pitches. A fastball and a faster ball that either broke down or broke up at the last very moment. And so I agreed to warm him up. Lanny was firing the ball in there. We were having a great time. We were joking back and forth a little bit. And he kept throwing them. And I said, Lanny, you need to calm down just a little bit. We've, the game's not going to start for another 20 minutes. Just get loose. He says, I, I'm, I'm in the zone or whatever he said. I can't remember the exact words. 
And so he fires a pitch, fires a pitch, and then he fires an even faster pitch. I had the ball lined up perfectly with my catcher's mitt. Now remember what I said. His faster pitch either broke up or broke down. This one decided to break up. It went over the top of my catcher's mitt nonstop into my face. Nonstop. Blasted my, blasted my face and uh, nailed me right in, the, right in the nose. I instantly fall over. Marshall Henley, who was also, he was the drummer in the band that I was in with Lanny that broke up after one song. Marshall Henley is warming up in the outfield and he comes sprinting over because he saw what happens. And I'm laying there, my eyes are closed. And he looks, <laughs> sorry, he looks down at me and says the following. I'm assuming he's looking down at me. He's looking at me <laughs> and he's about two feet from me and he says, dude. Are you dead? Because <laughs> I wasn't moving. I wasn't moving. And, I, and I'm in a state of shock. And so I immediately start laughing. I said, I think I'm okay. My mom, my dad come running over. And, and the next thing I know, I'm, on, I'm in the car going to the hospital to get to the ER. And they're going to do x-rays. The x-rays show that my nose is completely, for lack of a better word, obliterated. I have, I have cartilage all the way over to here. My nose is just gone. The amazing thing was this, no blood. We have no idea how that happened. Maybe that means I'm a bloodless individual. I don't know, but, but I couldn't believe it. But my nose is completely, it's just gone. And the doctor said, we, we are going to need to do some type of surgery after the, after the swelling gets down. And, and so we agree, we go, I go in, I have the surgery, and, and one of the things that they didn't tell me was what was going to happen after the surgery. So the surgery happens, and your nasal cavity is huge, by the way. And so they end up, to make sure that the reconstruction stays put, they end up having to pack all this stuff into your nasal cavity to keep everything set. Some of you are going, John, your nose doesn't look very well for, for a reconstructed nose. So for the next four weeks... The only smell I had was of that packing stuff in my nasal cavity. Now imagine what that smells like. Well, you probably can't unless you've had a nose broken. But the reason why I'm pointing this out is this. Is that all my sense of smell, all one trillion different smells that I could, I could experience in my life were now limited down to one. It was taken away from me. The powerful sense of smell leaves an impact on us all the time. There are different smells that when you're coming or going somewhere or, or you enter into a room and you smell something, you're saying, those are cookies or that's this or that's that. Or perhaps they even bring up a memory that you have in your past. There's this one particular smell that smells just like what I smelled for that month. And when I smell it, I instantly go back to Marshall Henley asking me the question, Dude, are you dead? We look at this powerful story in the book of John, and I invite you to look, uh, invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12, as we look at this story that involves smell. 
It was such a powerful experience that we're still talking about it almost 2,000 years later. Listen to what happens, starting at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, some of your Bibles might say spike nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a, a year's wage. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was, a, he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Jesus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Father, we pray now as we look at this wonderful passage in your word, this wonderful event that happened in your life so long ago. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes that we could see, open our ears that we could hear, open our minds that we could understand, and open our hearts that we would be transformed by the overflow of generosity that you so richly give to us. Lord, may no one hear anything that I say, but may they only hear what it is that you want them to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Any great story requires a great writer. A great writer needs to have a generous setting. And as we look at this particular passage in John chapter 12, we need to see what's before it and what's after it. Because that sets the stage for why this particular passage is so much more important and so much more powerful than we, than we realize. And there are markings of a great writer all over the Gospel of John. John has a consistent theme, and he, and he develops this theme by talking about light versus dark. And John also, because he's such a great writer, he knows how to keep us engaged from John 1.1 all the way through the last verse of John. He does it in an amazing way. He uses different stories. He, he, he introduces us to different people that we will see develop throughout his gospel. And here what is going on is that John places one of the most intimate, intimately beautiful stories in all of Jesus' life. He places it right smack dab in the middle of two tense situations. Two very intense situations. Listen to what happens right before this passage that we look at. This is in John chapter 11, looking at verse 45. He says this, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. 
What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was, chief, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, notice this, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Jesus now is a marked man. John's been revealing this slowly, 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 and now he comes to this place in his gospel where he says, Jesus is marked. He's so marked that there is nowhere he can go publicly where people are not going to be looking for him. And then John shares that story that we're going to look at a lot more closely. And John wraps up that story by saying this in verse 10 of John chapter 12. He says, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This generous setting that that John is setting up is right smack dab in the middle of two places where Jesus Christ is now going to be killed. Somehow, some way. People are not thrilled with Jesus. And so as John, I don't know what was going on in John's mind as he was pinning the gospel, but I would imagine he said this, this is really intense stuff. I am going to now put in that story where Mary anoints Jesus with perfume. You have this incredible tension before and after, and in the middle of that, John puts this story that is easily one of the most beautiful, intimate stories in all of the gospel. And to add weight to it, it is one of the few times in all of the Gospels where we see Jesus receiving ministry. So often we focus on the ministry that Jesus Christ does. He heals people. He restores people. He does all these wonderful things. He turns water into wine. He feeds over 5,000 people, probably more like ten to 12,000 people in one thing with five loaves and two fish. We, he walks on water. We see all these amazing things that he, do, that he does, but yet we forget that people ministered to him as well. Mary reaches out to Jesus and ministers to him in one of the most generous, overflowingly beautiful ways that anyone had ever done. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, 
Jesus came to Bethany where Jesus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We have a generous setting set up by, by, the, by John, the gospel writer, and now we have a generous opportunity taken advantage of by Mary, Lazarus' sister. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And as a thank you gift, Lazarus and his sisters said, we need to have Jesus over for dinner. How significant was this event? Consider this. We're still talking about it 2,000 years later. Imagine having a dinner event at your house this upcoming week, and they are talking about it in 4,018. That would be something else, wouldn't it? I'd love to be involved with that dinner. But we're talking about this event that happened 2,000 years ago, That's how significant this event is. It provided an opportunity for them to say thank you to Jesus. It provided an opportunity for them to say, you truly are amazing. And so everybody's seated. And Martha comes in, and Martha does what Martha always does, which is, she serves. Now one of the things that we need to understand here is this, is that when there was a dinner meal, when there was a dinner, of, of, uh, when there was a dinner honoring someone, all the men stayed in one room. And once they, are, once they are served, women stay out of that room. They do not enter in anymore. And so you have this scene where Jesus is, is a line, reclining around the table. That's the way they ate back then. He's reclining around the table. They've been served this food. They're enjoying one another. And then she entered. She entered. This scene was ripe with tension once she walked in the room. All conversation that is happening at that time around the table ceases. Because how dare this woman walk into that room? It was an amazing opportunity for Mary to be generous. She walks into that room. And as she walks into that room, all eyes go from looking at Jesus to now this woman who had the audacity to break all types of cultural norms at that time. The audacity to not only break all types of cultural norms, but then to go directly to the person of honor. That scene was tense. That scene was filled with all types of confusion as well. And notice this. Jesus does not stop her. The scene is tense. And then we read these words. Verse 3, She took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. 
this perfume, this expensive perfume, and we'll talk about the expense in just a moment, but what we need, well, we need to talk about that right now. Uh, we need to talk about the jar that it was held in. It was an alabaster jar. This jar was only to be broken. It was only to be broken on the most special occasion for a woman. It was part of her dowry. It was only to be broken on the night that she and her husband wed. It was something that had been handed down to her from her father, and it was, it was vital, it was priceless. It wasn't just a jar. It was something of great value because it held within it something of great value. This wasn't some recycled plastic thing that we have at, 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 at Star Market or whatever. This was a jar that held great value. And within that jar was this perfume. And notice what happens here. She pours it out on Jesus' feet. The silence in that room is broken by the breaking of this jar. Once the jar is broken, that the perfume is poured out not on Jesus' head, but on his feet. On his feet, this perfume, this perfume that is such incredible value. At today's prices, this perfume, a pint of this perfume, would go for $50,000. She dumps it on his feet. Mary didn't see this as, well, I'm just going to give Jesus the leftovers. I'm just going to give him this after I've, after I've used all this stuff. I want to dump it all right now. And she does. $50,000 is poured out onto Jesus' feet. She pours it out onto Jesus' feet. And then she does something. She takes it up another notch. And she wipes his feet with her hair. That hair. She reaches down with her hair and wipes them over the feet of Jesus Christ. When a woman let down her hair in public, it said that she was not a woman of high standards. But for Mary, she was willing to let everything go because she was pouring out generosity on Jesus Christ. And one of the interesting things about smells is this, is that the, last, the, the one place on your body that smell lasts the longest or remains the longest is your hair. So perhaps maybe part of Mary's thinking was, um, well, she didn't have a towel, but she had, she had hair, and little did she know, I don't think she understood this fully, that what she was doing then was going to last her for quite a while because she would not be able to get the smell out of her hair anytime soon. And then we're told this, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The aroma penetrates every nook and cranny of that house. 
There isn't a single molecule in that house that is not affected by the smell of this perfume. The aroma goes everywhere. Now, let me be very somewhat a little graphic with you. This is a room full of smelly men who do not have on socks, who have walked who knows how far to get into this room. Yes, their feet have been washed with water, but yet it probably smelled in that room. No offense, fellas, we smell. And into that, Mary enters. And into that, the room is changed from a smelly guy room to the beautiful smell of this perfume. Generosity. Generosity always leaves an aroma. When you and I extend generosity, it leaves a mark. Things are changed. The ugly smells of life are alleviated for a brief moment. She does this She violates so many things, but here's why she does it. She does it because Jesus Christ had given her back her brother. He had brought back her brother from the dead. Remember this as we go through this generosity series. I talked about it last week. God is the one who gives and gives and gives. Jesus Christ gave Lazarus back to his family. Mary is simply responding to that incredible generosity. It's not because she could ever do anything to fully pay Jesus Christ back, but she gave everything she could. She was overflowing with generosity because of what He did in her life and for her family. And we see this, and and you can't help but sit there and think, wow, this is absolutely amazing. What a beautiful story. Let's see what happens next, because it's got to get better. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. It's silent. People are in in awe of what they've just witnessed. The perfume is permeating the air. The aroma is everywhere. You You cannot get around how beautiful this scene is. And then... Bam, right in the middle of it, Judas says, this was a waste. When we extend generosity, so often we think it's going to be met with, oh, wasn't that a nice thing? But oftentimes it is met with, you just wasted your resources. That's what Judas says here. He says this was a complete waste. The money should have been given to the poor. And again, we have another instance in John's Gospel where we have a case of Judas exasperation. I don't know about you, but when I read through John's Gospel every single time, I want Judas to do something different this time. He exasperates me. 
He's one of the twelve that's with Jesus. And I sit there thinking, how did you miss it so badly? And he misses it again and again and again. And when Judas makes that statement, the entire mood in that room changes. Perhaps people to that point had forgotten that Mary had violated all types of cultural norms and they were sitting there thinking, this is absolutely an amazing event that we've just witnessed. Perhaps they're thinking, this this generosity is overwhelming, I don't know what to do. But Judas immediately brings them back to reality and says, what she did was a waste. Have you been there before? Have you been there where you've extended generosity? And people respond with, you just wasted your resources. For many of us, for many of us, it happens. But notice what John tells us here. Because it looks like Judas, is, 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 he's got some things going right for him. But in verse 6, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. John never cuts corners. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Self-absorption and generosity are always incompatible. And as you read through John's Gospel and you encounter Judas, you see again and again and again, Judas is more concerned about himself and his view of how things should go than he is about Jesus Christ and how things really should go. Self-absorption and generosity are incompatible. When we're only looking out for ourselves, it's impossible to be generous. Jesus Christ is always looking out for others. And He's generous in that care. Imagine, and in a few weeks, you can see this, well, I hope it doesn't play out what I'm about to, what I'm about to tell you. But imagine in a few weeks, you're out shopping, you're doing your Christmas shopping, and you come out the door, and the Salvation Army has the bell ringers there, and they're doing their thing, and people are putting in money. And you go back to your, you're going to your car, you turn around, and as you turn around, the bell, the bell ringer opens up the kettle, reaches in, grabs all this money, leaves a little bit because he doesn't want to take everything, because then it would be too obvious that he stole everything and pockets the money. What would be your response to that? One of anger. One of, one of righteous indignation. How dare they do that? But that's what John was doing, all, Judas was doing all the time with the money that people had given. Judas covers himself by saying, this should have been given to the poor. And you know what? He had reason to say that. Passover was just around the corner, and during Passover, they took an offering, and and they raised up money to help out poor people. And so Judas looks the part, but yet looks can be deceiving. And that's what happens to Judas. He calls out Mary's generosity, and makes himself look so much better. And one last point before we move on is this. I want you to consider Mary's cost. Mary's cost versus Judas's cost. Mary gave generously a $50,000 pint of perfume she pours out. And how much did Judas 
sell out Jesus for? One month's wages. Generosity always beats self-absorption. And here's what's great about Jesus. He has the last word. And he provides a generous defense. And look at verse 7. says this, Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now keep this in mind, Jesus didn't die that day. It's going to be a few days later. But he knows what's coming. And Mary does this. She does this generous thing. And then he says, you will always have the poor among you. Keep in mind, it doesn't mean that we don't care for the poor. We're called to care for the poor all the time. But you will not always have me. You won't always have me. Jesus Christ always defends generosity. Always. He always defends foolish generosity, it seems. Look throughout the Gospels. We have a a widow giving two small mites and he applauds her because she gave everything she had. He takes five loaves and two fish, not just to feed the guys that are hungry there. He feeds over 12,000 people with those five loaves and two fish. Why? Because a little kid comes up to him and, 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 well, I don't know if he came up to him voluntarily. I think the apostles grabbed him and said, you need to give this up. But he takes this five loaves, these five loaves and two fish, and does amazing things with it. When we are generous... Jesus Christ defends that. He defends it again and again and again. And He provides all of us, every single day of our lives, opportunities to be generous. And when we seize those opportunities to be generous, you know what's going to happen? We experience His defense. Leave her alone. It was intended for her to do this. It's intended for us to be generous people. And it was intended for God, through Jesus Christ, to generously pour out on us a love that can rescue us from whatever comes our way. God did not hold back. God gave everything. And in the process of giving everything, it leaves a sweet smell of reconciliation that penetrates this world that smells so foul that the only thing that can overwhelm it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ rescuing us so that people can experience true life. So I ask you this morning one last question. When was the last time you experienced the aroma of generosity in your own life? Father, we pray now. As we think through this passage, we think through what Mary experienced and the courage it took her to to go into this situation in such a way knowing that she was violating these cultural norms, yet her generous spirit said, You need to do this. 
And Lord, I know this to be true, that there's great fear when it comes to being a generous person. We're afraid of how it will be received. We're afraid of perhaps not having enough after we're generous. And yet, time and time again, you remind us that you're in the midst of the generosity. And so we pray that you would remind us of that once again. And that we would be moved to be a generous people. That we would be moved to not give leftovers, but to give our very best. Because you gave your very best in Jesus Christ. So Lord, move in our midst. May we be a generous people in response to your amazing generosity to us. In your holy name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We come now to this time where we remember the significant event of what Jesus Christ experienced for us. It's an event that, again, shows us how generous this God is that we have. It's an event that put Him on the cross, and it's an event that Jesus understood to be so significant that He said, you need to remember this. You need to remember this every time you get together. Now, our tradition here isn't that we do this every day and every week that we meet. But our tradition here is, on the first Sunday of every month, we remember what Jesus Christ experienced for us. That He gave everything so that we could then experience forgiveness and reconciliation. So the children are going to come in, they're going to try and find their parents, and and as they do that, we are going to celebrate this event of remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. A body that was broken and blood that was poured out. And so as the elements come to you, if you've placed your trust in Christ, we invite you to, to, to consider what He's done for you. And if you haven't placed your trust in Christ, we invite you to reflect on what Christ has done. That life, that death, that resurrection that is available, not only to others, but to you as well. That forgiveness that comes through knowing Him. And so, you'll get the elements, and then we'll take them together.